everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. This is your host, April Hanna. We have a few announcements before we get into our interview today. We just want to remind everyone that we are taking the Path Evolution to Austin, Texas on October 18th, and we're going to be at the Movie and Eatery, and we're being sponsored by INAX, and we'll have a little more information on where you can purchase those tickets later this week. And then we're going to be traveling out to Redondo Beach, California in Los Angeles. We're really excited about that, and we hope to see a bunch of you out there. We have a great venue. It's going to be at the Hilton Inn, 120 seats. So we're looking forward to wrapping up the Path Evolution Tour with those next two screenings that we have. And then we're bringing it back to New York for our last and final screening on November 17th at Columbia Green Community College. So we have a really interesting show for you today. We are speaking with Susan Anderson, who is the author of the Abandonment Recovery Workbook, as well as Taming Your Outer Child and the Journey from Abandonment to Healing. The founder of the Outer Child and Abandonment Recovery Movements, she has devoted the past 30 years of clinical experience and research to helping people resolve abandonment and overcome self-sabotage. Welcome, Susan. Oh, I'm happy to be here, April. Yeah, this is a great and fun um, interview for me to do because I am also a a mental health therapist and I have my own clinical practice, so I think we're going to have a great time talking about abandonment. Um, So maybe we can take our listeners a little bit on your journey of just your, your clinical experience and then how it led you to creating this wonderful workbook. I mean, it's really intensive. I got a chance to um, look through it and it's like over 400 pages and, but the exercises and the questions that you have in there, it's, it's really wonderful, but I'd like to hear, and I read a little bit and know a little bit more of what your journey is, but the listeners don't. So can you let them know how you kind of got to, um, you know, researching abandonment, using it in your clinical practice and coming to make this recovery workbook? Well, um, after 20 years of, of having a lot of clinical experience working in a psychiatric hospital and with a private practice, I was looking at people, psychiatric people and my, my private people, through the lens of abandonment because I had a sensitivity to that and I could see that that separation anxiety was the key to healing. It may not have been the cause of everyone's issues. For instance, in the hospital, people might be having a drug reaction or something of that sort or an allergy. But regardless, that separation anxiety that people have created a, a, a potential connection for me as a therapist And it it was the way I zeroed in quickly without wasting any time, getting right into the heart of people's issues. Then the love of my life of 18 years, my marital partner, left me for another woman. And I was so devastated. I had been madly in love with him all those years. We built a whole beautiful life and family together. And he left me for another woman. It was very abrupt. And I began to discover the hard way that the tools that I had been sharing with my clients were weak in comparison to the power of the pain. I already had perused, you know, all of the psychological literature and all the literature of self-help, and there was nothing in the literature that spoke to the center of this pain. Um, You know, psychology talked about separation, attachment, those kinds of things, and self-help tended to talk about heartbreak. But the help that was available seemed to, it was well-intended, but it seemed to trivialize 
the level, the depth of this kind of wound that I was feeling. So I started to do research, and I had to go into sort of animal psychology and study what happens to fruit flies when they're separated and so on and so forth. I got a research mentor to help me decipher studies that had to do with glucocorticoids and certain neurotransmitters, poo and receptors and so on, uh, that, that have to do with the body's own endogenous opiates, all of these things. And over time, and through trial and error, I realized that there were five stages of abandonment and that there were, they were phases that overlapped, but five sort of sets of emotional um, upsetness that goes with the trauma of abandonment. And I learned how to manage those feelings and, in fact, use those feelings in a way that allows us to benefit from abandonment, from the trauma, from the crisis, rather than be diminished by it. So that's what launched me into this. And voila, you know, four books later and so forth, um, I find that um, I people are begging for a path, an illuminated path that makes it as easy as possible for them. And it made sense to me. A workbook seemed, you know, very uh, significant uh, help to people. And it's a big, thick book, but it goes fast because a lot of it is questionnaires and checkoff lists that, um, you know, are part of what you do because, you know, healing from abandonment, and I'm sure you know this in your work, isn't something you can think your way out of. And we sure do a lot of obsessing when we go through it. But it's something you do your way out of. So the workbook gives you a place to use your pen on paper. You know, that's doing. And it gives you exercises that you do and then activities that you do during your day, tiny baby steps that are easy. The idea is to make it easy for people because it's certainly a, a bewildering time. So that's what got me started. Great. Excellent. Yeah. And I'd like to go into what your definition of abandonment is because you're giving the example of, you know, a loss of, of love and marriage. Um, but in your in your book, too, you have also a section where it's the top 31 primal abandonment scenes, but I'd like the listeners to understand and maybe relate to their life, or maybe people that are listening might even be questioning, well, do I have any abandonment issues, or what, what constitutes abandonment? Well, we all have abandonment issues, and it, it's sort of our abandonment signature, if you will, our abandonment fit, uh, fingerprint um, is based on our constitution, maybe our biology, you know, our legacy that we've inherited, but on all the little childhood experiences that we've had, abandonment is a cumulative wound. So it encompasses just all the stuff that we've ever felt when it had to do with disconnection, separation, hurt, and feeling dismissed. So as adults, we all have abandonment issues, but not all of us have them triggered by you know, life experiences unless and until we lose an important relationship, unless and until we're fired or a very dear friend forgets to remember our birthday or doesn't invite us to a party or we, are, we have wonderful ideas in the workplace, but our ideas are somehow put down or not recognized and we have to watch someone else get credit or, you know, get esteem from, from the, the, your coworkers. These things trigger very strong emotions and cause us to feel 
um, as if there's something wrong. You know, we're weak. Why do we have such performance anxiety? Why can other people be so spontaneous? Why are we having um, uh, perhaps, you know, sensitivity, hypersensitivity to rejection or to feeling, you know, less than when other people don't seem to have this? So we start feeling the, the, um, the, the effects of the abandonment wound as we go through adult life. And some people are feel them more keenly than others until and unless they have, you know, a major event happen. So it really encompasses everything. And you know why is because we've all been through the birth trauma. So we all experience being in this warm, cozy, you know, homeostatic place of complete needs being met and then suddenly we're thrust out in the cold and, you know, and then we're gathered up into someone's arms and fed and made warm and, and we, we feel satiated again. But then we're put in a crib and we get scared and we get cold again and hungry again. And then we're gathered up again. So we, we have a legacy, each human being, each mammal, of having connection and disconnection, connection and disconnection. So we are conditioned our brains, our emotional brains, the amygdala, it conditions us. We are conditioned to have a response to all of these little connections and disconnections that occur throughout life. So we all have, to some extent or another, abandonment issues. And would you say that there are certain experiences that happen that would cause more traumatic responses to abandonment as to other things? Like, you know, comparing and contrasting is getting fired from a job less traumatic than, say, being sexually abused or, um, you know, your caregivers neglecting you at a young age? Well, the original so-called trauma, it's conditioning, but, you know, that's how trauma implants itself in the brain through conditioning us to associate, um, you know, things with other stimuli. So we're all conditioned. Our, the template of trauma is abandonment. So when a child is sexually abused, they it's a terrible form of trauma. But the way that trauma translates emotionally is on that abandonment template. The child feels that they're being wronged, that they're bad, that they're unworthy, that they're being singled out for something that isn't right, that a parent or a relative is 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 forfeiting a chance to show love and concern and treat them well and instead is abandoning them. A child experiences all abuse as an, an emotional abuse. It's all abandonment to a child. You know, as is if your parents are alcoholic and they're there physically but not always there emotionally so that, you know, you have, you have this kind of yearning emotional hunger that you grow up with. Or if one of your parents leaves, or if one of your parents die, or if you are bullied by an older sibling and, and your home is stressful in that way, or if your parents are narcissistic and you have to meet their needs in order for them to meet your needs, or your, your parent could be borderline and you're actually not having a childhood, you're coping with a difficult personality and trying to work around it. All of this creates feelings of diminishment in the child growing up because they say, oh, I'm not special enough. I'm not special enough to have my mother be alive or I'm not special enough to make my father happy. He's always angry. I'm not special enough. So the child 
is reacting to all of these different scenarios. And it's very hard to say that one type of trauma is worse than another because they really all happen on that template of the original abandonment, you know, birth trauma, on that template of connection, disconnection, connection, disconnection, and that, those awful feelings of self-doubt that accompany them. Um, so in adulthood, when you lose a job, it can be devastating, especially if you don't have other relationships. It's your whole life and you've been rejected if you've been fired. Um, if you're the person you love deeply for, in my case, 18 years and he just up and leaves me for another woman, you feel rejected. And so that element of rejection adds a whole new component or a whole additional, because it may not be new. Many, many of us have had a lot of rejection throughout life with parents, etc., peers. Um, so it adds a whole additional component to the trauma, to the grieving process. Yeah, and this might be a nice segue into you explaining what the five stages of abandonment are. Yeah, well, you know, going through my own experience, it took me about a year to realize that I was going through a grief process. And um, they're shattering, withdrawal, internalizing, rage, and lifting, and they spell swirl. And what you do is you swirl through the stages. You know, they overlap. They're not discrete packets that you complete one and start the next. You swirl through them. You overlap through them. Within an hour, within a week, within a month, within a year, you're swirling. It cycles within cycles. And some of the stages may, may cause you more difficulty than others, depending on your childhood you know, traumas, depending on your personality. In shattering, the rug has been pulled out from underneath you. And if you had that happen as a kid, that's liable to create a psychiatric crisis in your life. Now, that's not to say there aren't resilient people who have very traumatic childhoods who have really wonderfully stable adult lives. But anyway... If you, when you, the shattering is when, is when the, you are in a state of, you know, every moment of awareness is sparked with pain because you keep re-realizing you're, you've, been, you've been rejected, you've been abandoned, you're at loss. And it's um, a very powerful uh, time. But then you evolve, you, you sort of overlap into withdrawal where you begin yearning and pining painfully for that person. You need a love fix but you can't get it. You want that job back. You want to feel good about your life again. You want that friend to return or whatever it may be. And you begin pining and yearning. And depending on your childhood, if you had um, your parents got divorced and you were yearning for your, your father who is now living in another town, um, you, it will bring back a lot of that awful yearning. And you may find it very hard to, to go through the letting go process and in the next phase, you sort of overlap into internalizing where you are beating yourself up. You're using the rage about being rejected against yourself and causing a severe depression. You're assuming, oh, I'm not worthy enough. I, I, I'm not special enough. I'm not, I'm not worth keeping. I'm not attachment worthy because somebody has fired you, let you go, or not remembered your birthday or whatever it may be. And then in the next phase, you overlap into rage, 
where you actually are saying, wait a minute, it's not all my fault, and you begin to rail against your situation, and you take it out on innocent bystanders, if you're like most people, um, because you they say stupid things like, just let go and move forward, and you're struggling so hard with this thing, it's not easy to let go and move forward, if only you could. You're also angry at your boss or your abandoner or your friend, but you don't want to lose any more crumbs of love or approval than you already have. So a lot of abandonment survivors are so codependent, they have a hard time getting angry at the abandoner. You know, they they actually take it out on everyone else and not the abandoner. But you feel this agitated depression during the rage phase. And then you get into lifting where you feel intervals of relief from the grief. Maybe a friend makes you laugh and you realize, oh, God, I just felt good for a second, you know, and you realize that life in all of its fullness pulls you back in. But the key is with abandonment recovery, and which is why I wrote the workbook, when you lift out of the abandonment, it is absolutely essential to take your feelings with you, to keep that in tuneness, tuneness because of your vulnerability being a very key part of your recovery. It's a precious, precious gem that we locate within us. And so many people leave their feelings beneath the, the surface of the, of the scar, the scab, the, the calluses that formed over that heart wound that we received. We leave the feelings behind because they're so uncomfortable. And what happens is that when we emerge kind of numb, half-dead, remote, we want to feel again. And so we, we, but we can't have a hard time feeling. So we chase the unavailable because then at least we can feel insecure, rejected, you know, deprivation. We can feel those negative feelings because at least those we can feel. It's harder to feel that sort of, you know, mutual love. It's a milder feeling. So people who don't take their feelings with them fall into all of these patterns of self-sabotage one of which is, which is to start chasing the unavailable and wind up making it hard for themselves to move forward. I, I would like you to talk more about that because I found that interesting in the way that you uh, combined some of the scientific evidence of what happens with the brain and the chemicals that are getting released in the brain that almost can be contributed to people being addicted to that type of seeking self-sabotage behavior in relationships if they have not healed some of their abandonment issues. Well, you know, addicted really is the right word because it involves the body's own opioids, which are the opiates, the endogenous opiates. We are familiar with the one called endorphins, uh, you know, the runner's high kind of thing. Well, but when you're in a relationship, uh, you, you, your body produces a certain type of, endorph of, of opiates, of endorphins, and you become addicted to a person. It's, it's part of bonding. It's, it's what helps all the mammal species bond together, have pair bonding, have group bonding. That's how they survive. And, and it's mediated by an addictive substance that the body produces that is perfectly natural. It's, we become addicted. And when we lose that relationship, we go into withdrawal, hence the withdrawal stage. Okay. When you, when you are, when scientists are doing research and they, they are, um, studying pair bonding, let's say, or, or group bonding, and let's say lab rats, if they bring in a stress while the, while the two rats are put in a cage together and they bring in a stress such as a mild electric current, um, 
if they do that, the bond is intensified. So what happens is when somebody leaves us, instead of it making us love them less, we love them more. We put them on a pedestal and it intensifies the bond because the love and attachment that was there through the opioid system is now complicated by a different kind of opioids, endorphins, which are produced during pain. Now, that is the runner's high, you know, the pain in the, in the joints and the bones. That creates the opioid. So then you become even more addicted um, to the person once they hurt you. It's called a traumatic bond. So there's a reason that we chase the unavailable. We're addicted to the unavailable. That's why I call it abandonalism. And there's a reason we have so trouble, so much trouble letting go. We become addicted. We don't know it. It doesn't feel like it because it's all mental thoughts and, you know, we're, we're blabbing on to our friends endlessly. We wear them out talking about that person and we think it's all psychological. But there is an enormous component in the brain that actually makes recovery that much more difficult. Hence, the need for really effective tools, because the usual tools, you know, reciting affirmations in the mirror or something like that, just don't work. We need physical therapy for the brain to reroute those cross wires where we're in love with the unavailable, we're in love with that which hurts us, it's an addiction, and we have, we have to really work on things to, to change that whole biochemistry. Yeah, I find that fascinating, and I'm sure you've sat across from many clients, as I have, where you find people that they're going through that breakup of that relationship of that person that they know may be unhealthy for them, and they say, I know that this isn't a great relationship for me. I probably shouldn't be in it. I shouldn't be pursuing this person, but I just can't stop. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I continue to get into these relationships where, you know, the person just is always leaving me or isn't good for me, and your explanation kind of explains that for the person and of course even for the therapist and for the friends because you want the person you want your client or your friend to let go so badly and the fact that the that the person that they're pining for and still with is hurting them makes the bond that much stronger but mm-hmm. that's something so un- so subliminal. It's in the brain. It's it's part of the body chemistry that that part goes unrecognized. But the fact that that person is in a an unhealthy, destructive relationship makes the bond even tighter. It puts the hook in even more. You know, years ago, I worked with a woman, beautiful, beautiful woman as as a person and in, inward and outwardly just lovely person, and she um, was madly in love with someone, and they had a great time for a few months, and then he started to pull away, and of course, it did to her what everybody has happened. She got these huge emotional suction cups that popped out and made her feel needy and desperate, and then he accused her, you're needy and desperate. (laughs) You're too needy. You're not independent enough, and then she faulted herself, I'm too needy. I'm too too dependent. Um, and so she was having low self-esteem over this, but she couldn't help feeling needy and dependent. And you know, if, any, if we love someone and they pull away, every one of us, regardless of how independent we are, will develop these huge emotional suction cups that aim at the person. We don't have to act them out, but we feel them, you know, because it's human nature. But this woman went from being this guy's 
lover and main squeeze, and they talked about a family, and now all she was to him was a booty call. And this went on for years. Her friends wanted to throttle her (laughs) (laughs) because he was just calling her at the very late at night, and then she couldn't resist because it was a chance to make him fall in love with her again. She was hooked. And what she was underestimating was that it was an addiction in her body. She couldn't just, you know, do the usual things to try to get over him. She had to do a whole program of exercises that actually, you know, helped change the, the wiring in the brain. I mean, that's, quite, that's kind of putting it a little, you know, pseudoscientifically. There's more to it. But um, she had to follow a real step-by-step behavioral um, and, of course, she was finally able to conquer it, but not easily. It's even with a workbook that's 400 pages, you know, it's still something you have to do the work. You have to actually take your pen, do the checkoff, do the que- answers, and then do the little activities, the baby steps. And she was able to overcome it. And with doing exercises in the workbooks like you have, and you're also talking about the behavioral approach, like in any addiction, there kind of needs to be both. Um, Are there actually, do they find that there are changes in the brain and how that actually helps the person with the addiction? Because if we have all of these chemicals that are going off and happening to create this draw to this person, um, does the workbook and the exercises, therapy, and then the behavioral component reset and rechange parts of the brain? Um, I, you know, I don't have access to an fMRI machine. Don't you wish I did? I mean, <laughs> there are so many things I'd want to study. But it really, the, the results coming from fMRIs are sort of on the inconclusive side because it's really only checking brain activity, et cetera. But anyway... Um, but there's so much research that supports the, the exercise program that doesn't actually watch the effects on the brain. But, you know, we know that when we repeat a positive behavior over and over, it becomes habituated. Well, that becomes habituated because there are parts of the brain that become habituated. And we also know that we can put other behaviors, other, you know, stimulus response, you know, conditioning behaviors, that our knee-jerk reactions, our outer child patterns that you know, drive us crazy because we, in the, in the moment, we do the wrong thing. Um, we, there are behaviors that we can put on extin- extinction. Under stress, they can come back, but if we've, under tremendous stress, but if we have learned new behaviors and practiced new behaviors repetitively, they too become knee-jerk reactions. They become, you know, they get muscle memory. You know, they, they become part of the habituated process in the brain. So, Yes, it does reprogram the brain it, through behavior and through the, uh, you know, getting into the moment, which is a very important component of the program, is being able to access the moment. Um, because that, when you are able to do mindfulness meditation as a, as a you know, as a daily approach to life, as a, as a regimen, as it were, that has been pretty well shown to affect the brain in positive ways. The left frontal cortex, you know being, you know, stimulating that part of the brain. And yogis who practice meditation for years, have they find that there are permanent changes in the brain. So there's, for every one of the exercises, they're all looking at the research to look to see what actually helps 
to get down in there, to dig deep enough to get this stuff to change. And that also brings us to your story of the black swan. You know, when you were practicing a moment uh, during your walk and kind of being in the moment and you came up upon this black swan and it, you kind of integrated the story of that into your workbook. Can you share that story with our listeners? Yeah, the, the black swan inspired me to, I don't know, it was sort of a higher power in a sense or a higher self that I was able to access. I still don't understand how it happened, but I was able to somehow come up with the 12 lessons of abandonment recovery. And they, they're sort of a, you know, an abstract spiritual, emotional kind of way of, he of healing the abandonment wound. And then the exercises that were research-based, so they were all working. They were all effective. I tested them clinically for a long time, and I folded the, two, the 12 lessons of abandonment recovery into the, into the five stages that are, you know, that guide you through, that guide you through the five stages in the workbook. But the black swan, it was an amazing thing. The day after the love of my life moved out and to move in with another woman, I was so, I was in so much pain. I didn't know there was another woman at the time, but I was in so much pain. Um, I had been teaching my clients and I was only able to stay in it for seconds at a time. But at the bottom of my hill, I managed to walk down to the, to the water on weak knees, I was in that much pain. And there was a black swan in the harbor. And this is the East Coast. There aren't black swans on the East Coast. And I identified with the swan. He, I made it a he, um, was surrounded by a community of white swans. And I began to make him a focal point because I needed distraction. I needed something to just interrupt the constant torment going on in my, in my mind. So as I did, I began to create um, sort of a sense of his wisdom in my head or else he taught me. It's just very hard for me to quite put it together logically. But there it was. And I began to discover the importance of doing certain things, of looking, of positioning myself a certain way. And that's how the 12 lessons of abandonment recovery took a year of studying the swan, of writing, of getting into these sort of um, intuitive moments where I'm really just just really tapping into my resources. But at the end of a year of practicing the 12 lessons, about a year after my, the love of my life left me, I was now happier than ever before and in a new trusting relationship that I didn't think I was capable of. I had found love again. It's miraculous. And you know what's most miraculous? I found someone who was not an abandoner. I was attracted to someone who was not destined to one day walk out on me in some selfish, egocentric, narcissistic way. This person would never abandon another person unless they did something terrible. I was attracted to that. That was new for me because these 12 lessons really helped me transform something that was deep within that I didn't even know I had. So, that those lessons are all part of the workbook. And on your website, um, you know, you do have some characteristics of people who fall into more of being the abandoner. So can you also talk about that, about the difference? Is, is this more of a personality type or what makes some people become more of the abandonment 
person or the abandon, abandoner, and then the way that you describe the new relationship is that this isn't something that this person would naturally or normally do unless there was a deep hurt. Um, yes. So many people are both abandonees and abandoners. I am. I have actually insensitively walked away from a friendship without keeping in touch with someone. I, and I'm the one who initiated the ending of my, my, my first marriage. Um, so there's an abandoner in most people we had when we when we're not experienced enough and we don't we're not in touch with all of our own feelings we can be very callous in some of our relationships i don't know if i was callous exactly but i was able to do that but there are some people who uh, let's say that they're codependent and people pleasers and they all they need is love well i know we put people down who are codependent and people pleasers and all of that but there are some people who just would not be able to bring themselves to cause the pain that would be caused by walking away from someone. So unless something big happens and somebody does a bad thing and they, the whole situation changes, they just simply wouldn't do that. There are people like that out there, and I've become one of them. I have become one of those people because the experience of going through the pain of abandonment in adulthood, which brought back all the childhood stuff, and there was a lot of it, but that humbled me and, and helped me get in touch with the core of my human, my human self. It brought me to the molten core of myself. And now knowing the pain that it can cause to be sort of irresponsible in a relationship and take a risk, have, have an affair, and run the risk of falling in love with another person, those things I now would know not to do. And this person I found knew enough not to do that. And people like that are out there. But rather than disparage the other folks who try to do the best they can, they're trying to be happy, they're trying to be good to their partners, but they still, many, oh, many very good people still have a habit or a pattern of, you know, losing interest when the person they're pursuing becomes available. They hate having to hurt the person. They hate pulling away from someone who's been good to them. But they get in a relationship, they are all excited while they're in pursuit mode, and as soon as the pursuit mode is over and they've won the person, they start to shut down and they lose interest or they get bored or however they may word it. What happens is they emotionally start to pull back. And, of course, that creates a horrible dynamic in the relationship because their partner you know, aims big, hairy, emotional suction cups at them and makes them want to really get away. And usually it ends the relationship. And they don't want to keep doing this pattern. Um, so these are people who are potential permanent mates to someone. And they've abandoned a lot of people. But that doesn't mean they're callous, you know, craven individuals. It means they just haven't been able to hang in emotionally and they haven't been able to love when there is no pursuit, when there is no challenge, and they want to. So I, I, there are, you know, there are craven abandoners who are just insensitive and use people and have no problem just being callous. And another factor from your question is that the abandoner very often remains oblivious to the pain that they have caused. They walk away. Meanwhile, you are a broken shard of glass. You're shattered all over the floor. You're in yearning and you're in withdrawal and you're beating yourself up and you're enraged and can't handle. You're lashing out. You're going through this 
swirl process, you're in hell. And the abandoner is in a new relationship, having new sex with a new person, and is very annoyed when you call and ask for this and try to have closure. It's annoyed and sort of keeps you at real arm's length. One, the abandoner is in a position to distance and detach from the abandonee. So even those of us who would never, um, you know, want to abandon someone, even I, when I went, when I initiated my divorce, I could see the pain that it caused, but it was also something I could detach from. And I could leave the house and go do something interesting with friends and not be worried about it. But when it happened, when you are the abandonee, you're the one being left. Oh, it's hard to get distracted. Um, mm. it, it's very hard to, to uh, you know, just get through the experience without really getting depressed and, and feeling bad about yourself. So there is a real, you know, difference between the dynamics that the abandonee and the abandoner feel. Great. Thank you for that. I also, I wanted to go back a little bit more to the brain and I have my notes here in front of me and I can't find specifically where it was that I read it in your book, but um, you had made mention when there's abandonment very early on in childhood um, that there are certain either chemicals or damage that can actually happen to the brain that affect this uh, abandonment and people kind of like moving forward in attachment with their relationships? Yes. Well, the, a lot of this has been studied with, um, uh, you know, post-mortem on orphans, um, people who were raised in or orphanages and on autopsy are shown to have smaller hippocampi. You know, the hippocampus on either side of the the, the brain, which is responsible for the, you know, memory, for, for memory of situations. So the amount of the stress hormones that are that are um, exuded during times of disconnection and deprivation, those stress hormones damage the brain. And people also, um, animals who have been separated, you know, this is in research studies, animals who are separated from their mothers, uh, for instance, rat pups, who are separated from their mothers for certain lengths of time, very short periods of time, because today's research attempts to be very humane and um, not create undue stress for the animal. So they've reduced the stressors, but even with a huge reduction, the animal is, is you know, not handled for 20 minutes a day. You know, there's 20 minutes less handling. These animals, as adults, exhibit um, brain change behaviors such as avoiding novel situations, uh, re stillness, um, hyper, you know, hyperactivity at, at other times when there's a, when there's a trigger. Um, so that many studies, I'm giving you like one example. There's, this has been studied across all the species, but separation distress, um, which is really the, the sort of the bottom line of all of this, changes the brain. And it, through the stress hormones, it may... Um, it, it, it may kill the brain cells that lead to and from the hippocampus so that we wind up having emotions that are powerful, imprinting powerful emotional, um, you know, powerful threat reactions in the amygdala, which is the emotional brain, um, and then inhibiting the ability to remember what caused it. So we have all of this, you know, emotionality. We don't even know where it's coming from. So that is the way in which early separation distress uh, affects the brain. 
Great. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it was the hippocampus. I couldn't remember what, what part of it it was, but um, I just think that, you know, as we were talking about, you know, the addiction part of it, but I also wanted to educate our listeners too, if there was kind of that early childhood stuff for them and, um, you know, what can happen there with that as well. And um, I also wanted to, before we end, because we're slowly running out of time here, but, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the word right, but I wanted you to just uh, briefly explain, is it a karu? Yes, a karu. A karu. It's a Japanese word that means to begin and to end. Um, So that's what abandonment is. You know, you you go through a loss of a job or a friend or or a feeling or a health or, you know, a, a lover, and you go through this, and that ending or that having the rug feeling as if it's been pulled out from under, that feeling is actually the beginning of something because in the empty room that you left when you went to college, your parents created a den or something of that sort. It's the empty space in which we create something new. Life goes on. So ACARO are the five exercises, the program, the ACARO program, the five exercises, one for each of the five stages of abandonment. So you have one for shattering and you have one, you know, one, I say one, but it's a, you know, it's a series of, of steps that you take in the exercise. You have one for withdrawal. You have one for internalizing. And you use all of the exercises because we're swirling through this all the time. Um, and then there's also the abandonment recovery, which helps you to integrate it and work it into your mode of living and breathing on the planet. So the Akeru program is the way that we take the pain of abandonment and use the feelings, which is very hard to do. Most people do the exact opposite of what is healing. They instincts and have them fighting the feelings and being in protest mode and thinking and thinking and trying to analyze their way out of it. That's what we do without intervention, the obsession of going through this. But the actual mode of healing is doing, and it's in the body. We heal it by working with the body. And the body, meaning the pen and the hand, checking off a checkoff list, meaning, you know, following a guided exercise that helps us to visualize something that's positive, which involves doing, which is behavioral, which then becomes in the body. So the healing is about the doing of exercises that actually create healing and change behavior and embed new patterns in the brain and new, new biochemistry. Wonderful. Now, you're actually going to be really close to us. We're in New York, and you're coming down to Manhattan in uh, October, the end of October, October 30th. Right, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it might be nice just to, if you'd like, to let the listeners know where they can find your information, where you're doing your workshops and appearances. You'll also be uh, close to us at uh, Kripalo in Massachusetts, and that's in June of 2017. But, um, yeah, where can people find more information? They can come to abandonment.net where they can reach out to us at the abandonment recovery and they can find out about all the books. The workbook is, is really helpful and that's the latest one there and where all the workshops are. And the workshops are on the East Coast and the West Coast and some of sometimes in, in Europe as well. Any place really that has a venue that um, has people who are interested in recovering from abandonment, I try to make those those visits. Um, the West Coast is at Brighton Bush and Esalen. 
and Institute, and they're both beautiful, gorgeous places that are just, they're life-changing experiences. And the East Coast is at Krupalu and Institute and the Open Center, which is coming up just in a few weeks. And that's a one-day survey of this, of all the exercises, the program, and it sounds like it is, it goes fast. That day is just, whew, it's over so quickly. It's six and a half hours. But I'll tell you that people have life-changing experiences just from this, okay? From coming together and talking, you know, sharing the abandonment issue. It creates instant intimacy, even in large groups. Of course, we break down into small groups. But it creates instant intimacy and, this, and the recognition that we know intellectually we're not alone. We all go through this stuff. We compare our insides to other people's outsides. But in this program, for six and a half hours, you're realizing we are all made of, our feet are made of clay. We're in this together. And it's an amazing life-changing experience just to connect with other people going through this stuff. Great. And you also have trainings for uh, those who are in the clinical profession, who are therapists. Um, and actually want to take this process and be trained to bring it to their clients. Can you talk a little bit about that? I've trained quite a few people just by having them attend the workshop. If they're in, some people attend the workshop and don't tell me until the end that they came for two reasons, personal and training, um, because they didn't want to announce that they were clinicians because that could you know, make other, put other people off. And then at the end we find out, oh, there are 12 of you in the group. You could have easily <laughs> announced it. But anyway, um, the training is experiential. You know, it's not an intellectual process. You have to do it and feel it in your body. You have to feel the effects. You have to see the impact that it has on other people. You have to see how different things and different words and different approaches, how the different people react so that you can begin to imagine yourself taking this exercise program, taking parts of it, taking all of it, and bringing it into your own groups and your own private practices. So the training is experiential, and if people tell me, before the program starts. Well, of course, then I do some work on the side to make sure that it pertains and, and that it's coming through as something they can replicate. So that's how the training operates. I've done specific training programs, and I'm, I'm sure I'll be doing that again, but I don't have one listed right now. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for being a guest on the Path 11 podcast. I am sure all of our listeners in some way, shape, or form have been able to relate to this podcast just within the relationships that they've had with people, and I am sure that they've learned something really valuable today. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepassseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at or send us a tweet at thepassseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.